Lord Jesus, you command us to love, to love both God and one another. But we need to know how to love, and we ask that you would teach us by your word this morning how we may love one another and how we may love you. Teach us to love as you love us, and grant us your spirit to hear and to receive your word to us this morning. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. What's your purpose in life? What do you live for? Who do you live for? These are big questions that rarely confront us in ways that call for a profound response. They commonly arise at the death of a loved one or in the shocking aftermath of a cataclysmic event, maybe a relationship breakdown, a lost job, a severe failure in some scheme of ours, or a dashed hope. And yet Christians are expected to answer these questions with deep seriousness on at least a weekly basis. Christians at their baptism or their confirmation, make serious statements about the source and the goal of their lives. But more than this one-off event of baptism, each week as we join in with corporate confession, as we celebrate Holy Communion together, we re-establish Christ as the purpose and the goal of our lives. As we fix our eyes on Jesus in worship and in prayer, we realign all of our priorities, trusting that when Jesus is desired first in our lives, all the other desires of our lives will find their proper place and proportion in relation to him. That's what Christian life is and involves. And every approach to God in prayer is in itself an act of repentance. It's a turning away from selfish desire and a turning towards God. Repentance is the active work of faith. It's a word and a term which sometimes has a slightly negative connotation, but actually it's the only way we make progress and mature in our faith. It's a continual turning from and a turning towards. Repentance, if you like, is the tiller by which we navigate the two ways of life. Life in the sinful nature and life in the spirit. Now, life in the sinful nature... And this was a passage we just heard read in Galatians 5. It it exists. Or life in the flesh, as it's sometimes translated in the Bible, simply means life lived for ourselves primarily. It's life led without reference to the God who created us or who has revealed for us the pattern for humanity in Jesus. It's life turned in on itself. Life in denial of its source. Life doomed to self-destruction. Life leading to death. That's the irony of life in the sinful nature is that its only one destination is death. We know something of what it looks and feels like through our experience. Because I trust that each of us knows something of what it's like to be caught spiraling down a tunnel of despair. When rage or sorrow or bitterness govern our feelings. Where envy, pride and greed govern our actions. We know what it is to do and to say and to think things which are profoundly destructive. Both for ourselves and for others. And if you don't know that feeling then well done. I certainly know that feeling. We have experience of this life in the sinful nature. 
with all of its enslavements and empty promises. By contrast, life in the spirit can seem elusive, unobtainable, unreachable, unreachable. And yet, it is the life in which we as Christians are being led. Now, we may not be conscious of our progress along the path, even when we don't feel as though we are making the progress that we desire in life in the Spirit. Every act of repentance, confession, prayer, worship, discipline, and service is a sign that the Spirit is leading us and that we, somehow, we don't know how, are managing to keep in step with the Spirit. The sign that you are keeping in step with the Spirit, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5, 23, 24, is that you are continuing in this habitual pattern of worship, repentance, confession, worship, prayer, service, discipline. And this keeping in step with the Spirit doesn't mean that we become more spiritual in a way that makes us less physical. That's one of the old mythologies, one of the old problems we've inherited sometimes. Christian spirituality has little to do with the idea that to become more spiritual, you have to lead a more ascetic life. That is, a life without food, drink, art, sports, sex, music, and beauty. There was for many years in Christian tradition an unhelpful notion that claimed that to be more spiritual, we must shun the world and all its delights. The delights of the world were actually made by God and given to humankind for our pleasure and enjoyment. Now, we're not meant to idolize them, of course. We're not to make them into gods to rule over us, but we are to enjoy the physical universe that God has given us. Tom Wright has a very helpful metaphor for thinking about this distinction between life in the flesh, or the sinful nature, and life in the spirit. He uses the analogy of a boat. It's sometimes thought that the difference between the flesh and the spirit is like the difference between a wood-hulled boat and an iron-hulled boat. As though they were two totally different things, fundamentally other from one another in their essence. But it's better, Tom Wright claims, to think of the difference as being a bit more like the difference between a steamship and a sailboat. One, the steamship, life in the flesh, is driven along by its own fuel and energy, while the other, the sailboat, depends on the wind of the spirit to propel it along its course. So we don't escape life in the flesh by abandoning everything that's material and physical, as though it's bodies and all that physical stuff that's the problem. That's not how you become more spiritual. Rather, we stop trying to move under our own strength, and rather we become more receptive. We lift up the sails so that we may catch the wind of the Spirit to direct us as he will. And when we are receptive to the life of the Holy Spirit within us, St. Paul says certain fruit will develop. Certain things will grow on us, in us, through us. And over the coming 10 weeks or so, we're going to consider each of these spiritual fruits, what they are, and how to cultivate them in our lives. And we begin today with the first of the fruits in that list in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. And we're going to consider love. Now, St. Paul 
Jesus and countless songwriters, poets and novelists are all in agreement. Love is at the center of the universe. Love is a many splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. I won't continue and burst into song. St. John declares in his first letter, God is love. And it's this central declaration of God's essential being that reveals to us something about why we were created and how we are to live. Jesus says in the reading in Mark 12 that we heard that the whole of God's law and commandments can be summarized by the great command to love God and love your neighbor. No difference, no distinction. Love God and love your neighbor. And Paul concludes a section of teaching on spiritual gifts to the church in Corinth by saying, above all these spiritual gifts, there's something more fundamental, more vital. And what does he go on to write about? Love. Love and its characteristics. Now, it's a chapter, it's a reading that we're accustomed to hearing at weddings. But this passage is not really intended to speak about romantic love between a man and a woman. Rather, it's in the middle of a section about church life. 1 Corinthians 12 is all about spiritual gifts and about the body and all its different parts and all the different ways in which God has called us and made us to work together. 1 Corinthians 14 is all about how we're going to worship together, how we're going to have orderly worship that edifies everybody and and lifts everybody into God's presence. But slap bang in the middle, it's not a passage to be read at weddings. It's not about romance. It's not about love. It's about love. Love in the community. Love in our church. It's to remind us that we are living lives of love towards one another and that that is the most basic and essential feature of Christian life. He concludes with these words that you recognize. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And in that other letter to the church in Galatia that we heard read, Paul begins this list of spiritual fruit not with goodness or self-control, important though they are, but with love. Love is the beginning and the end of Christian life. It's the first of the spiritual fruits. It's the last of the great three virtues of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is our source. Love is our goal. The 20th century English mystic Evelyn Underhill put it this way. Love is the budding point from which all the rest come. If it is frostbitten, we need not hope for any of the rest. If love is frostbitten in bud we need not hope for any of the rest. Without love, it is impossible for the other fruit to develop. But maybe we find ourselves, and I'm remembering the early 90s song by a DJ, asking the question, what is love? What is love? And it's a valid question, because a moment's reflection will lead us to recognize that there are different kinds of love that we experience in relation to different kinds of relationships and different kinds of objects. Now, many of you know I love red wine. But I'm not romantically attached to it. I love my study armchair, but I'm not about to lay down my life for its sake. We're limited in English for only having one word to describe all kinds of love. Many things that we like intensely, we say we love. 
Whereas the Greek language spoken in the time of the New Testament, in the time in which Jesus and St. Paul were speaking and teaching, the Greek language then had four common words to describe different kinds of love. C.S. Lewis explained them in detail in his famous book, The Four Loves, which I highly recommend reading. And I'm going to summarize them briefly. The first of the Greek New Testament words for love is storge. And it describes a particular kind of empathy bond, such as exists between a mother and a child. Close bonds of affection between parent and child mean that we can experience pain and anguish in the suffering of our loved ones. And mothers can often describe themselves feeling physical pain and trauma when they hear their child crying. Storge leads to the protective bonds that characterize family life. Familiarity and provision of needs are aspects of this kind of love. It's the kind of love that causes us to phone our parents for emotional support or that causes our children to come to us for food when they're hungry. It's a kind of love that I expect most of us know something about with uh, our parents, with our children, with uncles, aunties, siblings. But interestingly, it's never used, this word, storge, in the New Testament. The second Greek word used to describe uh, love is philia, and it describes the love that forms and develops in friendships. It's a kind of love that's based on common values, shared interests, or activities. It's strong and long-lasting. C.S. Lewis describes it as the least biological, organic, instinctive, gregarious, and necessary, the least natural of loves. It develops not naturally, but because of common interests, shared values, shared experience. One commentator points out, our species does not need friendship in order to reproduce. But to the classical and medieval worlds, it is a higher level love because it is freely chosen. But again, this word is actually used only once in the New Testament. And when it is used, it's used negatively. It's in James 4, verse 4. And there, James uses the word philia... to describe friendship with the world. Friendship with the world which necessarily causes hatred towards God. In other words, to be bonded by common value or shared interest to the world is to turn our back on God. Well, again, we know something about what that looks like. If we, if we go along with the world's priorities around uh, self-fulfillment, self-realization, gathering more, becoming more acquisitive, more wealth, more power, more status, more money then inevitably it turns us away from the life God has called us to lead. So the first is storge, which doesn't occur at all. The second word is philia, which occurs once and there negatively. The third is eros, and this is the Greek word for romantic, erotic love. Now when C.S. Lewis considers eros, he doesn't have anything against it as regards its part in sexual attraction between a husband and wife but he does warn that it has a tendency to become a god to those who submit to it. It becomes a justification for all kinds of selfish behavior. Now, I think we probably would recognize this in the way that our society values freedom of sexual expression almost above all other things, as though the path to true self-fulfillment, true happiness, is only through unfettered sexual self-expression. And let's face it, this has led many to heartbreak, trauma, low self-esteem, and even to the sexual health clinics. 
So first is storge, second is philia, third is eros. This is never considered in the Greek New Testament. The word which overwhelmingly is used in the Bible to describe love as Christians receive it and perceive it and understand it is agape. Agape, translated as caritas or charity in the Latin. And this is the term of choice for the New Testament writers. It appears over 100 times in the New Testament. And it's a word that describes the self-giving, unconditional love of God for his creation. Where do we see this kind of love perfectly embodied? Well, in the sacrificial death of Jesus for the world that he loves, of course. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And in John's vision, recorded in Revelation at the end of the Bible, he sees in the heavenly throne room, not an all-conquering warrior, nor a master politician, nor even a noble ancient bearded king, such as you might imagine in a Lord of the Rings movie or in an episode of Game of Thrones. Instead, he sees one who looks like a lamb that had been slain. So the image of God in his glory, which concludes the biblical narrative is the image of God who freely gives his own life for us so that we might live in peace for him. How then do we cultivate this kind of agape, self-giving love for others in our own lives? Well, the first thing that we must remember is love is not primarily, as our culture may lead us to think, an emotion or a feeling. Now, emotions and feelings are important. Don't mishear me but they are also enormously changeable and variable. We cannot build our attitudes and our dispositions towards others on our feelings alone. The band Massive Attack put it this way in their 1998 hit song Teardrop. Love, love is a verb. Love is a doing word. To cultivate agape love, we must focus primarily on our actions and our habits in relation to others. I think this is why Paul devotes a chapter of his letter to the Corinthians to the subject. And what are the characteristics we see there? Well, right there in the heart of it, verses 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. Love always rejoices with the truth. It always protects It always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Fifteen dispositions, actions, characteristics of love in action. Verse 8 concludes these attributes of love by saying, love never fails. It's a sentiment that we sing in our worship, in that chorus, your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out of me. That chorus perfectly embodies this verse in verse 8. It's a reminder to us every time we sing it that God's love never fails. In other words, the final word in the argument that life can sometimes feel to us is love. God's love has won. We're not abandoned to fear or despair or to sorrow. God's love remains. Whatever you're going through, however you feel at this moment... Whatever traumas you face, whatever struggles you endure, God's love is held out for you, ahead of you, behind you, your source and your goal. 
We come from love, we move towards love. God's love never fails. So if we want to cultivate this kind of agape love in our lives, if we want this spiritual fruit to grow, we must focus on our habits of thought and speech as well as the practical ways we serve and relate to others. But here I want to just share an important word of warning. Love is not a currency with which to buy for yourselves. Because for all that I've said positively about love, Christian approaches to this agape love can easily fall prey to two distortions. And it's important that we we note them. The first is to view our love in action towards others, whether that's our patience, our sacrificial kindness, our going out of our way for others, to view all of these things as a sort of deposit in a bank account so that our own sense of self-worth and value is based on how much we have done for others. We can be tempted to then stand before God and argue our case. Look at how much I've done for others, Lord. Surely I deserve a reward. Surely nothing bad should happen to me, given that I've been so nice to everybody. We can seek to self-justify based on our religious, loving service of others. And indeed, if this is not kept in check, we can develop a Messiah complex, where we believe that we are giving ourselves for the sake of the world. Whereas in truth, it was Jesus who gave himself for the sake of the world. If we fall into this distorted approach, then our self-giving love turns out in the end to really be self-getting love. It's wonderful to serve one another. It's wonderful to love in action and in kindness. But always test our motives. Bring it back to the heart. Are we seeking a reward for this? Are we resenting our kindness, our service, our discipline because we don't feel we're getting a fair exchange for it. If that's the case, something's gone wrong. That's the first distortion. The second distortion is the tendency to use the Christian understanding of agape love to exploit and control others. You should be serving in this way. You should be committed to this thing. You should be behaving in this way. If you're a committed Christian, you will be doing this. You will be doing that. In this case, we're not truly loving people. We're seeking power and control over them. And Christian leaders are often the most guilty of this approach. So I preach to myself here. How then can we develop this true thing we're looking for, this true spiritual fruit of love? How can we avoid the distortions of our culture, which would have us view love primarily as emotion and feeling, drawing upon eros? How can we avoid the distortions that occur in the church, using love as a currency or using it to control others. Well, back to the first letter of John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. We only cultivate love in our lives when we acknowledge Jesus as the source of all love. When we contemplate his love for us, we then become a conduit through which his love for others may flow. Evelyn Underhill again. The fruits of the Spirit are those dispositions, those ways of thinking, speaking, and acting which are brought forth in us gradually but inevitably by the pressure of divine love in our souls. They all spring from that same root. Fruit of the Spirit are brought forth in us gradually but inevitably 
by the pressure of divine love in our souls. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so it grows in our lives when we abide in the vine that is Christ. His life-giving spirit flows like sap through our veins, bringing forth fruit without our consent or volition. The apple tree in my garden cannot help but bear fruit in season, though it does require the conditions of some occasional pruning, some good soil, some time exposed in the sun, and with enough water. So if by our worship we bask in the light of Christ, if by invocation of the Spirit we drink the spiritual waters he gives, if we remain rooted in the good soil of his word, the Bible, then we cannot help but bear this fruit. It's not a human work to be completed on our own, but a consequence of our immersion in the life of Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We love because God first loved us. And so we pray earnestly for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Would you like to stand? We're going to pray. I invite you just to, in your mind's eye, imagine yourself gazing upon Jesus, the one who loves you, the one who gave his life for you, however you picture him. And perhaps above all things, picture him the way John did, the way John saw him as a lamb that had been slain, the one who gives himself for you. Jesus, we love because you first loved us. And we pray that you would increase in us this spiritual fruit of love. We pray earnestly for the gift of the Holy Spirit. You may wish to hold out your hands as though you're going to receive the gift. You may wish to imagine yourself writing an invitation to the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Be present in my life. Jesus says he stands at the door of our lives and knocks. If we will hear him and open the door to him, he will come in and eat with us and be with us. So we pray, come, Holy Spirit. Let us know we are loved. Let us know that perfect love which drives out all fear. Come, Lord. And if you feel as though God is ministering to you and you feel the presence of God in your hearts, if you're feeling a sense of joy and a sense of grace and forgiveness, love, then just simply say, thank you, Lord, in your heart. Thank you, Lord. Please give me more. He loves you. He loves you. He pours out his life for you. Love is the final word in the argument of life. When all fears and strivings cease. One thing remains, God's love.